Listener Production. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is the Science Briefing. Today, we're diving straight in. Three stories from last month you might have missed, but should definitely know. I'm with Emma Perfetto, science journalist for Cosmos Magazine. Hey, Emma, how are you? I'm feeling relaxed. I'm feeling rested from the long weekend. I'm ready for this. And so, Emma, three stories. We've got another asteroid. We can never have enough giant space rocks to grab. And two hair stories, two. That's where we're going to start with a hair sample from one of the most famous musical composers in history. And that's our pal Beethoven, Emma. Yeah, yeah. So this is a story about hair samples from Beethoven and trying to uncover exactly how he died because his exact cause of death has been the subject of many rumors over the years. Really? I had absolutely no idea. So what are the theories out there? Yeah. So there's like a whole bunch. (laughs) We have, you know, historians and scientists that have been mulling it over for decades. Some believed it was from alcoholism. Sure. Lead poisoning. Right. Some were connecting it to his deafness. Very famously, he became increasingly deaf in his later life. But now scientists believe that they're getting even closer to figuring out exactly what happened to him. And that's because Beethoven's genome has now been decoded thanks to these hair samples. Okay, Emma, so these hair samples, like, is this legitimately Beethoven's hair? I mean, Beethoven has been dead for nearly 200 years, I think. Who's been weirdly just holding onto his hair samples all this time? So these particular researchers who were looking to sort of decode his genome were basically cross-referencing eight different hair samples that were taken from different Beethoven collections across, you know, Europe, the UK, and in the US. Three of the samples were actually completely like ruled out as not being from Beethoven's head. Mozart. (laughs) Potentially. But five were found to be authentic. One of the samples that they ruled out had previously led some to believe that Beethoven had died of lead poisoning. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they found out that it wasn't in fact his hair and they were able to sort of dismiss those suggestions that this was, you know, how he had died. Yeah. But of the five authentic samples, one is known as the Stumpf lock. It was found to be, you know, the best preserved of the bunch And it was actually the one that was used to provide the genetic sequence for the analysis that they did. Okay, so what was so great about this Stumpf lock? What were they able to find from it? It found that Beethoven had these gene variants that were potentially heightening his risk of liver cirrhosis. Mm. And that's just the permanent scarring of the liver and it sort of stops the liver from working normally. In particular, he had variations to the PNPLA3 gene. These variants, when you combine them with drinking a lot of alcohol, may have substantially increased his risk of liver disease. On top of that, he was also found to possess two mutations to the HFE gene, which is known to cause hereditary hemochromatosis. And that's a disorder where the body can build up too much iron in different places, such as the liver, and that can also lead to liver disease. Okay, so lots of signs pointing to Beethoven's liver here. Is this a confirmation of what he died from? Look, it's all pointing to the liver, isn't it? But unfortunately, 
the scientists said that, you know, they can't definitively say what killed Beethoven, but they've also said that at least the study zeroes in on liver complications. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting sort of case study into our fascination with how people die, you know, especially with, with musical icons and celebrities and people like Beethoven, who he died nearly 200 years ago, and we're still trying to figure it out. So a quick hiatus from hair and now looking up into space. This one's about some pretty amazing findings from asteroid dirt. So I know that we talk a lot about asteroids and space on this show already. We love asteroids and space. We love them. Um, But I want to talk about one asteroid in particular. So in 2020, a NASA space mission called OSIRIS-REx returned from an asteroid called Ryugu with a sample of 5.4 grams of asteroid soil. Now, that might not sound like a huge sample. I mean, especially for me, I used to work in the deli section at Foodland. (laughs) And if someone asked me for 5.4 grams of salami, I would have been very upset about it. That's not a lot of salami. That's wafer thin salami, isn't it? It's not a lot of salami. But in the scientific sense, it's actually a really good amount. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we almost got through it. And I'm just, and I was just like the two Italians talking about deli meat. I love it. Anyway, sorry, please continue. Mm. (laughs) Um, So a new study has suggested that this asteroid soil sample actually contains a building block of RNA. This building block is called uracil, and the soil also had vitamin B13. Okay, so expand on this for us, Emma. I always forget this stuff. Now, RNA has something to do with DNA, but it's not DNA, maybe. Kind of. So... RNA stands for ribonucleic acid, um, and it's present in all living cells, including our own. Mm -hmm. So it's like DNA, except, so you know, if you picture DNA, it's that sort of double-stranded helix shape, very iconic. Yeah. RNA is single-stranded. Very basically, RNA acts kind of like a messenger, while DNA holds the instructions that you need to make proteins those instructions need to be translated into RNA first to then use the RNA to go and build the proteins. And this is important because these processes are essential for life to exist. Okay, so basically what you're saying, Emma, is that we've found this building block of RNA, uracil, in space, outside of Earth. That itself seems like a huge discovery. Exactly. Scientists found the uracil samples in pretty small amounts, though. Mm-hmm. So we're talking in the range of 6 to 32 parts per billion. Right. Vitamin B13 was a little bit more abundant at 49 to 99 parts per billion. And look, this might all sound a little bit out there, but these sorts of experiments are you know, incredibly important because most of our understanding of asteroids in our solar system comes from meteorites. And meteorites have gone through the really harsh heat of coming through our atmosphere and then crash landing on Earth. So to get these asteroid samples directly from the asteroid, it kind of allows researchers to analyze them in their, you know, original and unchanged forms. Yeah. And there's another mission that's going to kick off later this year, which is going to be returning samples from another asteroid called Bennu. 
So NASA researchers are confident that this spacecraft is going to be returning to Earth with between 400 grams and one kilogram of asteroid dust, which is just massive. Huge amount of salami. That's the kind of salami that I need in my life. (laughs) Me too, Emma, me too. So there's a lot of excitement around this next mission and, you know, when it returns. Okay, and now, Emma, back to hair because we can't help ourselves. Some scientists say they've come up with ways to measure curly hair. Explain this for us. What does that even mean? Yes, I'm really excited about this one. It's all about hair categorization. So scientists have identified a number of measurable properties when it comes to curly hair. Oh, okay. It includes like the number of curls or coils, which they call like contours within a given length of hair. For their measuring, it was three centimeters. They found that wavy hair has less than one full contour within three centimeters. Curly has about two. And then kinky, coily hair texture has approximately three or more contours within three centimeters, which if you think about it, like that's a lot. That's a lot. Three centimeters is not long. Another parameter that they sort of identified is known as stretch ratio. It's basically the measure of the force that is required to completely uncurl a strand of hair until it's straight. So that ratio is pretty much zero when hair is straight because, you know, it can't be uncurled. You can't uncurl it, yeah. (laughs) Um, But it's 0.8 for wavy hair, 1.1 for kinky hair, and 1.4 for curly hair. Ultimately, this research is aiming to identify the best ways for, you know, product developers to design products for curly hair and also for us as, like, consumers for, you know, selecting the products that are going to be the best for your particular hair texture and type. Yeah. So I personally have really, really curly hair (laughs) and I find it really hard to know which products are going to work well for my hair texture. That's why I straighten my curly hair, Emma, because I just don't know. It's easier just to kill it with heat. And they're expensive. Hair products are expensive. So expensive. Like I don't really want to go out and buy like a whole tube of stuff to try out and then realize that actually it really doesn't work for me at all. And I've just spent $40 on something that I have to throw out. Like 40 if you're lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky. And, you know, I've over the years sort of Googled stuff online and I find that a lot of the like classifications for hair texture, especially for curly hair textures online, are pretty subjective. I want hard science. I want the numbers. I want to be able to measure it. Tell me how curly my hair is scientifically and hence what products I should be using to enhance my delightful curly hair. Exactly. And make them put all that information on their packaging so I can just browse through them and find something that matches. I think that would be so helpful. So I'm, I'm excited to follow this up. And then maybe one day I can have curly hair again. Thank you so much, Emma. This has been so good. I loved it. Thanks for having me, So, Emma Perfetto is a science journalist for Cosmos Magazine. You can read more of Emma's reporting by heading to cosmosmagazine.com. If you like the show, hit that subscribe button. You can download the Listener app to listen for free. The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe. Mixing by Dave Stein. And I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time.